And if you would uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to pick up our study in the book of Matthew. And I just wanted to start, while you're turning there, just to say how grateful I am to pastor a church that is so hungry for the Word. There were, you know, what, 20 to 30 people in that Doctrines of Grace class this morning before service, and people asking questions, dialoguing, discussing the Word of God and theology, and it just shows a hunger for the Word, and it is a blessing, it's a joy to preach to such people. You know, in certain contexts and cultures... It is offensive to not show up to the house hungry. To not eat the food prepared and presented to you. It's offensive in some contexts and cultures. You know, my wife's mommy Rosa would slap your hand and say, you should have come hungry because I was ready to feed you. I am so thankful that that's not the problem at Summit Bible Church. That you come spiritually hungry. You come desiring to be fed from God's word. And so it is a joy to each week serve, well, prepare and serve the meal to you. And I, I take it very seriously, but it is a privilege and a joy. And so we come to Matthew 12, verses 22 to 32. And I'll just say this too. From a distance as I was preparing for this passage, I knew it was coming on the horizon. I was nervous. I was a little bit uh, scared. Because this is known as a difficult text with a difficult issue, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that? So I thought, what am I going to give Summit Bible Church from this passage talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? But as I dug in, as I entered the the cavern of the mine and, and pulled up the treasures, I found, oh man, there is so much for us from this text. So much that we can take and apply in our lives today. So I'm really, what was once dread is now an excitement. I'm excited to preach this passage and present to you what I found from God's word and and show you where I found it in the passage. So Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 22 to 32. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is Jesus, And he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, wow, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you. 
Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or in the age to come. Here's the big idea of this passage. Satan loses. Satan loses. He might respect gender fluid pronouns, but he loses. And he was promised to lose from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises that the Messiah the promised offspring of the woman, will crush his head, even though Satan will crush his heel. Now, there's no deliberation necessary. We don't need to leave it to the judges to decide who wins the match. The champion is the one who walks away with his head. And that's the Messiah, Jesus. You fast forward to the end of the book in Revelation chapter 20, we see where the devil's destiny is. It says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan loses. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And here we have another exorcism account where Jesus casts out a demon and he proves that he's the winner. Satan loses. And if you're on Satan's side, if you're against Christ, then that means you will lose. But for those of us who stand with Christ and in Christ, well, then we stand with and in his victory. And that's a great encouragement and comfort for us. There is no demonic power, understand this, no demonic power that can take you out of his hands because Jesus dominates the demonic. And so if you're with Christ, you are in safe and victorious hands. You're with the champion. Jesus proves this is true in this account. Let's walk through the passage, and I've, I've outlined it for you. The first point in the outline is the proof of kingdom dominance. The proof of kingdom dominance. Now, Jesus has already proved it. He's proved his power over satanic forces and a variety of other opposing forces like storms, sin, death. But this account is another proof of his continued dominance. In verse 22, it says, A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. Just a matter of fact. Jesus took care of it. He healed him. He exercised the demon, and the man spoke and saw. Now, we get an insight here to the demonic strategy. 
The demonic strategy is not to empower mankind, but it is to destroy us. Their aim is dominance through oppression and suppression. This man is blind and mute because of the demon. And there are other cases of this being so. Even Legion, who possessed that man, he was seeking to destroy that man. That man was cutting himself, harming himself. I don't understand the fascination with the satanic or the demonic. I don't understand why there would be a desire to be on the same team as the loser or to be, quote-unquote, empowered by demonic forces. They don't empower, they destroy. They harm. They oppress and suppress. But Christ's aim is the opposite. His dominance is through redemption and restoration. He heals. He liberates. He frees people from these demonic forces. And as a result, he heals the physical handicaps here. And so while demons and Satan, they establish a kingdom through destruction, Christ establishes his kingdom through salvation. The two forces are opposing. And so we see two truths right here in this little verse. Two truths. The first truth is this. There are two kingdoms, and they're at war. There are two kingdoms at war. You have Christ in the kingdom of light, and then you have Satan in the kingdom of darkness. Those two do not blend. They're not okay with each other. They don't live in harmony. One of them will eventually eradicate the other. The two kingdoms are at odds. This is war, a spiritual war. And the second truth, and it is definitive, is this. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Blow after blow. Punch after punch. Jesus wins. He defeats demonic forces and he eventually defeats all opposing forces of darkness by casting them into the lake of fire. These demons can't stop Jesus They can't resist him. They can't overpower him. He reverses the curse. He casts them out. And and Jesus says the same thing for us. It says in Colossians 1.13, in our salvation, he frees us, redeems us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of marvelous light. God draws us out. And he wins, he saves us, he casts out demons, and he'll forever destroy him. His divine power is irrefutable. And so here we have another proof that Jesus dominates the demonic. The second point in your outline is that after this proof, there is a question of his power. A question of his divine authority. That's point number two, the question of kingdom dominance. All the people, says verse 23, were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? Now we've hit that phrase already in Matthew. It's a prominent one. The son of David. Son of David is the royal messianic title. It's the title for the one who is the offspring of David in the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7. And he is the one who will sit on his throne and establish a kingdom, God's kingdom, forever. 
That's who the son of David is. The son of David is also the one who will save and restore the people of Israel. We're promised that in Jeremiah 33. He's the one who will save people from all nations and gather them all into his kingdom. Revelation 7, 9. That's who the son of David is. And Matthew already told us who the son of David is. In fact, Matthew, the gospel author, it's the first thing that he tells us in his book. If you remember, what does Matthew 1, 1 say? Turn there as proof. The first thing Matthew tells us is that Jesus is the son of David. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew names him. This son of David that you're looking forward to, Israel, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the one I've been telling you about this whole time. If they had made this a statement, if they had said, this is surely the son of David, they would be spot on. But they ask it in a question. See, can this be the son of David? Which tells us that there's still some underlying doubt There's still some unbelief. They're wondering. They're curious. They haven't made that statement definitively. And we wonder, are they close to the truth? And are they tracking with him? Or are they far from the truth and doubting? We we don't know. We don't know. We can't speak for everybody in the crowd. But we do know and can speak for the Pharisees. Because surprise, surprise, really no surprise, they open their mouths and make definitive statements about who Jesus is. Look what they say. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, they speak for themselves, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They tell us where they stand, and that is opposed to Jesus Christ and his miracles. What is Beelzebul? Beelzebul. It means Lord of the dwelling or master of the house. And it is clearly a reference to Satan. Elsewhere in scripture and here because we see this Beelzebul is the prince of demons. The one who rules demons. And so what they are clearly saying is that Jesus is empowered by Satan. Or even that Jesus is possessed by Satan. That seems like a reckless statement, and it is. But it's more than reckless. In verse 34, if you skip forward, Jesus tells us, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So they didn't just make this statement recklessly. They meant what they said, and they said what they meant. They think Jesus is empowered by Satan. Wow. What a reverse of what's actually true. What a false statement. And it's not only false, but it is fatal. It's a fatal statement. This isn't the first time that they've said it, by the way. In Matthew 9.33, when another demon had been cast out, The mute man spoke, the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, what? He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So they've said it before. 
And this isn't the first time that Jesus was made aware that they were saying this. He knew they were saying this. Because later in chapter 10, he said, if they called the master of the house Beelzebul, which is me, how much more will they malign those of his household, which is you disciples? So he knows he's being called this, or this is the accusation made against him. But this is the first time that Jesus directly addresses them and the accusation. And he gives them an irrefutable defense of why their statement is both false and fatal. So point number three in your outline, the defense of kingdom dominance. First, Jesus proves their statement is false. It's false. And that next phrase in verse 25 should strike us like a lightning bolt. What does it say? Knowing their thoughts. Hold the phone. Did you catch that? Good. Because it's remarkable. Jesus didn't hear them say this. Otherwise, the text would have said, hearing this, he replied, or he said to them. No, no, no. They must have been making this accusation behind his back. And that makes sense. They don't want to go toe-to-toe with Jesus again. Remember what he did with them on the Sabbath issue? He destroyed them in public debate. So they don't want to go toe-to-toe with him. So they whisper amongst the crowd, no, no, he's possessed by Satan. He's empowered by Beelzebul. It's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. But Jesus knows their thoughts. You can't stump him. You can't outwit him. Nor can you hide from him. Because he can read your mind. Like an open book. He sees your heart like a TV screen. He knows what you want. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you hate. What you love. Who you really are. And where you really stand. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's divine. Satan can't read minds. Only God can. And so here we have the second miracle in this account. The first miracle was casting out a demon. There's proof that he has divine authority. And here's the second one. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. And some of you here today need to know that. You need to be reminded that God knows who you really are and what you really think. You can't fool Him. Sure, you can fake out coworkers. You could fake your boss out. Maybe you can fake out your parents, your spouse. Certainly, you can fake out your pastor. I'm pretty gullible. You can maybe even fake yourself out, deceive yourself. But you cannot fake out Jesus. He knows who you really are. He knows what you think. He's omniscient. He is God who sees the thoughts and intentions of men. Genesis chapter 6. He doesn't see as man sees. He sees the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. And he knows whether you really believe in him or you disbelieve. It wasn't a question 
for God looking out on the crowds, even though they questioned, is this the son of David? God didn't question where they were really at. Jesus knew whether they were close to believing or far from it. And this is proof of his divinity. The second miracle, he knew their thoughts. By the way, this is all that Nathaniel needed to know. Do you remember when Jesus, what Jesus told Nathaniel in the Gospel of John? Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And what was Nathanael's answer? Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathanael knew, if you're omniscient, then you're the Son of David. You are the promised one. Nathanael had his eyes open before him at Jesus' words, but not these Pharisees. They're so stubbornly blinded, so stubbornly blinded by their own sin that no proof could convince them. They're staring at the sun and they say, I don't see any light. I see darkness. Oh, forget it. Nothing could convince these men so stubborn and rebellious. But Jesus continues to give them four arguments that you'll see in the passage here. Matthew 12, 25, all the way down to verse 29. Four arguments here. And I'll have them on the screen for you. The first is this. If demons are being cast out, then Satan isn't behind it. Or Satan wouldn't empower it. He said every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. This is a universal truth. So many cases in history prove this point. I mean, what about the notorious Roman Empire? You know, one of the greatest empires that ever existed. How did Rome fall? Divided against itself. Divided between the East and the West. Dividing and disseminating military power. There was political corruption from within and it fell to barbarians. So Jesus is stating a universal truth, and he says in verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan, then he's divided against himself. He wouldn't do that. That's not an effective strategy. It's unreasonable and ridiculous to say that, G that Satan would dominate and conquer for his kingdom by getting rid of all his soldiers. That doesn't make sense. It's an absurd accusation. Point number two that Jesus makes is if demons are cast out, then you Pharisees are either hypocrites or fools. Look at how he, he shows that they dug themselves into a hole here. There were some sons of the Pharisees, as Jesus calls them, that did the same thing he did. They were performing exorcisms. And so the Pharisees were excited about this because their followers were doing mighty God work. And they can get the credit for it. But Jesus points it out and essentially says, if I cast out demons and you say it's by Satan... And what about your exorcists who do the same thing? Are they possessed by Satan? See, Jesus puts them in a no-win situation. If they stick to their statement that Jesus is empowered by Satan, then they're hypocritical and biased. 
because their disciples do the same thing. But if they redact their statement, say, oh, just kidding, well, they look like fools. And we know they're both. (laughs) Hypocrites and fools. Digging themselves into holes, as they typically do. Jesus' third argument here is, if demons are cast out, then that means the heavenly kingdom is present. And this is really what the Pharisees were missing. The religious leaders of Israel should have seen that their king was here, and that the kingdom was offered. Jesus says, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, which we know it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is present. could be translated that way. And so Spirit-empowered exorcism. A king who is anointed by the Spirit is a sign that the kingdom is present, that the king is here, and he is. And this is what the Pharisees were missing. Jesus, after all, proclaimed, what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? Near. Unfortunately, the people of Israel do not repent. They reject their king. In fact, they crucify him on a cross. And so the full fulfillment of the covenants, the full manifestation of his kingdom would be delayed until his return, until his second coming. It's interesting to note that after chapter 12, Jesus no longer mentions the imminence of the kingdom. He doesn't say that it's near anymore. In fact, when he talks about the kingdom, he starts to talk about it being far or in the future, coming. And he says in Matthew 25 that the kingdom wouldn't come until his glorious return, until he comes again. Two comings of Christ, a first coming to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, and then he will come again to be served, to reign as king in his glorious kingdom. And so chapter 12 really marks the climax of Israel's rejection of the Pharisees, the religious leader, their rejection, blasphemy of God. And they're bent on killing Jesus. But Jesus' point is true. If demons are cast out, then the king and his kingdom, they're present. And you're rejecting it. You're saying no. Fourthly, his fourth argument is if demons are cast out, then Satan is being dominated. I believe this to be the thrust of the passage. The king and his kingdom, they're not just present, but he's dominating. It's dominant. Jesus says, How would someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds, ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Hendrickson, the commentator, provides this helpful illustration. In ordinary life, we know this to be true. The burglar does not get help from the homeowner. Instead, in order to get what he wants, their treasure, he needs to first tie up the owner or deal with him, and then he steals. We know that's true. And so what what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, if I'm casting out his demons, know that I'm not getting help from the owner of the house, the master of the house, Beelzebul. I've bound him, I'm dominating him, and that's why I'm able to go out and deal with his demonic forces. And Jesus has been proving this true. Punch after punch, blow after blow, Jesus is dominating the match. I mean, first, 
He resisted Satan's temptation in Matthew 4. And then he casts out all the demons he comes across with a word, Matthew chapter 8. He's going to resist the final temptation that came through Peter when he says, get behind me, Satan, Matthew 16. And the scriptures say that he disables Satan's power through his atoning death and victorious resurrection. And he promises to come back and deal a final death blow at the end of his kingdom. Dominant, 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 dominant. Jesus wins. Satan loses. And this is an irrefutable defense of Jesus' divine power, his lordship. He dominates the demonic. So their accusation that Jesus is empowered by Satan, it's patently false. And beyond that, it is fatal. It's a dangerous thing to say. Which takes us to point number four, the rejection of kingdom dominance. First, Jesus defines who his rejectors or who his enemies are in verse 30. He says, whoever is not with me is what? Against me. That's a very clear and strong statement. He says, and whoever does not gather with me, whoever's not in the house, plundering the treasures with me, works for who? The homeowner. The opposing force. Satan, who scatters, deceives, and is deceived. So here it is at the end of the day. Listen, there are two sides, two kingdoms. There is Satan, the God of this world, and the kingdom of darkness. And then there is Jesus Christ, the Son of David, and the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is plundering Satan's house. He's dethroning him. He's overpowering his forces. He's liberating the captives. He's gathering his people. And if you are not with him, then you stand against him. Not neutral. No Switzerland. No middle ground. No lukewarm. No half-hearted. No middle road. No compromise. You're with or in Christ, you're without Him. If you're without Him, then you're against Him. An enemy of His cause, an enemy of His kingdom, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But you serve the God of this world. So listen, Jesus is so clear with His call to discipleship. He doesn't offer you a a middle road. He doesn't offer you a way of compromise, a way for you to have an easy, quote-unquote, Christian life. Life where you be kind of serious about Jesus, but still be serious about the things you like in this world. No, Jesus draws the line. It's clear in the sand. You're with me or you're against me. And you cannot befriend the world because the God of this world has corrupted it. James 4 says, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. And then he says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Man, if you're here today, and you're riding the fence, or you think you're on a middle road, 
I plead with you to get off that fence and to come to Christ. Surrender, submit to the Lord of glory, the King of glory. Because there really is no fence at all. That fence will be taken right out from underneath you on judgment day and you're either with him or against him. Come to Christ. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can have it both ways, that you can remain lukewarm. He'll spit you out of his mouth, Revelation 3 says. There's no neutrality. Come to Christ. But if you continue to reject him, continue to reject the gospel invitation, continue to reject the king and his kingdom, and there's a stern warning for you in this passage. Jesus says in verse 31, he says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. I, actually, I want to stop and hang on that positive statement for a minute because it is a mammoth statement. Every sin, listen, and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Even, Jesus says in verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, against Jesus Christ Himself, will be forgiven. Let's, let's stop for a minute on the good news that Jesus presents here. That full forgiveness is offered even if you've blasphemed Christ. My mind immediately goes to people, men and women, who sinned grievously against God and God forgave in the Bible. We have examples of this. How about the Apostle Paul who persecuted the church? He blasphemed Christ and yet he was forgiven and made an apostle of Jesus. How about Peter who blasphemed Christ, denying him three times, yet he was fully restored and forgiven by Jesus? How about David, the great King David? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband to cover it up, but he was forgiven. He prays in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Rest in that truth. How about the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and her perfume? And what does Jesus say to her? I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. In addition to casting out demons, Jesus has the power to forgive sin, to make one right with God. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. This is the Lord of forgiveness saying this. Even those who speak against me. Maybe you're here today and you feel like a great sinner. Well, good news for you is that these are words from a great Savior There is not a kind or an amount of sin that is greater than the mercy and kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear these words today. If you're convicted or feeling the guilt of your sin, Jesus said every blasphemy and sin can be forgiven. The fact that you're guilty or feeling the guilt of your sin is a good thing, a good sign. And hopefully... It's the kindness of God that's drawing you to repentance and to trust in Christ. You can find forgiveness today. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. Cry out to God when He can be found. Confess your sins. Confess with your mouth that He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And you will be saved. 
washed, forgiven, made right with God. And if you're here feeling that weight, you're carrying that heavy burden, remember Christ's invitation just a few verses before. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. That feeling you have, right? you're hungry for rest and you'll only find it in Christ. Forgiveness in Him. And the fact that you're thinking right now, are you feeling guilty or feeling like, oh man, maybe I've sinned past the reach of Christ. That's, a, that's probably a sign that you haven't. Because you're at least still considering the offer of Christ and the forgiveness that He offers. But, but, now we turn to the negative. There is a solemn warning in this passage for those who don't repent. For those who continue to resist. For those who stubbornly oppose the obvious proof and truth that Jesus is the King and Savior. Look at what Jesus says. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Wow. There is a serious warning there. See, to be the enemy of God is one thing. We're all enemies without Christ. We need forgiveness. We need a Savior. We need a miracle. We need to be transformed, born again. We need to be redeemed out of the kingdom of darkness and saved into His marvelous light. But to be His enemy and to have such an obvious and clear display of the Holy Spirit's power right in front of your eyes, and then to pick up and throw rocks willfully at the Holy Spirit, and saying that that's the work of Satan, that's a whole nother level of rebellion, stubbornness, and a, reveals a hardness of heart. It's an irredeemable level, Jesus says. You've so hardened your heart against the truth that Christ withholds the offer of forgiveness. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what is it? As I understand it, it is willfully rejecting the obvious work of the Spirit and attributing it to Satan. It's denying what is irrefutable. It's again like looking at the sun and declaring, it is not light, it is darkness. Watching gravity pull an object to the ground and saying that it's actually the reverse. The display of the Holy Spirit's power is so obvious, it's so clear before these Pharisees. Jesus Christ, the Son Himself, stands before them. He is displaying time after time irrefutable divine power, and they reject it. Like with their hands over their eyes, deny it and say, that's of Satan. That's a whole other level of hardness, of heart. They've hardened their own heart against God. They've gone to a place of unbelieving insanity. I always wonder why men, you read in the Bible, men like Pharaoh, 
didn't repent and bow down before God. I mean, the ten plagues hit Egypt. Hail from heaven. Frogs. Locusts. Even the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. And still Pharaoh, it says in the text, that he hardened his heart. It's almost unbelievable. You're like, how can you not see it? The full display of Yahweh's signs and wonders have been made evident to you, yet it's almost as if Pharaoh wanted to be punished by God. He, he wanted hell. He wanted to stand opposed to God, even to death. And through death, we know that he walked right into hell. It's almost like Pharaoh got what he wanted. And he did. He did. He had so given over his heart to his own sin. He had hardened his heart. And God literally let him go. And that's what Romans 1 describes. God letting people go into their own sinfulness. Romans 1 says they suppress the truth. Although they know God, they don't honor Him as God. But they become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They become fools. They exchange the glory of a mortal God for images that resemble mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. God gave them what they wanted to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up. He's letting them go. And this is a display of his wrath to dishonorable passions, unnatural relations. And God gave them up. Finally, to what the text says, to a debased mind. You know what that means, literally? An unqualified brain. They're spiritually handicapped. That's how far your own sinfulness can take you. That's where you end up so hardening yourself repeatedly, consistently, stubbornly, refusing the truth, saying no to God, pridefully rebelling against Him. That's why in Romans 6, when it talks about those who have tasted the blessing of the Holy Spirit yet walk away, that's impossible for them to come to repentance. They've seen the truth time and time again. It's been presented to them time and time again, but they utterly refuse it. It takes you to a place, a point, where without a Savior, you walk through the door of death and you find yourself in the place that you were living for. You'll get what you wanted, hell. And you'll find no forgiveness here or there in this age or the age to come. And so with this final warning in view, I want to encourage you today to not let that be you. Don't give your heart over to hardness. If your conscience is pricked, if you have a sensitivity to your sin, if you're wondering, have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Probably not, because you're asking the question. And I'd encourage you to respond to that sensitivity, the Spirit's work in your heart, and to repent and come to Christ. Because listen, if you're with Him, then you're with the victor, you're with the King. But, if you continue to shake your fist at God, saying, I want my sin, I don't want you. Yeah, I, I 
heard that gospel thing before. I don't want that. That's a dangerous place to be. To continue to shake your fist, to continue to come to church, hear the gospel presented, and stubbornly refuse it, that's a dangerous place to be. And I would warn you, as Jesus warns you in this passage, do not refuse the truth. Do not stubbornly oppose it. Listen, I I'd encourage you to wake up this morning to see the overwhelming evidence that Jesus presents. He is the King. He is the Savior. This is war. Paul wants us to know that we're in a spiritual battle. Satan is real. His forces aim to dominate through oppression and suppression. And you know how Satan is doing that right now? He's suppressing the truth. He's blinding the minds of the unconverted. And we see that evidence in pop culture. And it seems like the enemy is advancing, well, at least in pop culture. Right? People are dancing around in devil suits and think it's funny. Or they think that it somehow gives them this power, this influence. Listen, Christian, why are we surprised by that? Why does that shock us? We know the reality. There are two kingdoms in this world. There's a kingdom of darkness that's seeking to influence and destroy people. Then there's the kingdom of light. And if we're with the king, rest assured, the victory is in Christ. He wins. Proclaim the gospel. Pray for those who are blind. So blinded in, in darkness that they need to see the light. And only God can shine that light upon their life as we share the gospel and the power of God works through the gospel. So let's just keep being faithful. To not, <gasps> when we see the world, do what the world does. Let's remain faithful to Christ and preach the powerful gospel that God uses to awaken people, to shine his light in dark, dark places. Jesus wins Satan loses. And there's great assurance and confidence in that truth. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to look at your word, to examine this account and see that you are victorious, that the kingdom of Jesus Christ will come and it will not be thwarted, and that we would seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Help us to not be infatuated or distracted by the world and its offerings. The world is under the influence of the God of this world and, and He is opposed to you, O oh God. And so help us to remember where we stand, who we serve, and cling close to Christ so that we would not, not be those who resist the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.